Genesis 1 says many wonderful things about God as creator and about the world as God's creation. It has very important things to say about God's creation of human beings and our place in creation. Unfortunately, today, many want to make its relevance dependent upon how literally we accept Genesis 1 as a description of how God created the world. Materialists reject any belief in a divine creator. They seem to be saying that because there is great scientific credibility to the theories of the Big Bang and biological evolution, there is nothing to be believed in the biblical account. On the other side, there are those who counter that unless you believe that creation happened word for word as it is detailed in Genesis, then you might as well be an atheist. These kinds of arguments, which take place from extreme opposite poles, actually ignore the essential message of Genesis 1. We are learning to let science be science and can still turn to this very ancient and divinely inspired text to discover what it says about the goodness and power of God as creator and to reaffirm Genesis's claim concerning the dignity of all of creation and of human beings in particular. In order to understand the wonderful message of the first chapter of Genesis, we need to understand the religious questions the people it was originally addressed to were dealing with. They were not dealing with questions about how subatomic particles got together, obtained mass, and formed into atoms at the beginning of time. They were not asking why the human genome shares so much in common with other primates. Today, those are legitimate questions for scientists and anyone interested in their findings. We can and ought to ask science to develop plausible theories concerning the evolutionary development of the cosmos and of life on our very special planet. But it would make no sense to demand that those dedicated solely to purely scientific pursuits should also provide us with profound theological insights concerning the origins of the cosmos or of life in it. We can still turn to Genesis for those insights. They are there, they just require a little work on our part to understand them in a 21st century context. First of all, let's let the book of Genesis be a book of its own time and place. After all, the message of Genesis was first directed to a people of an ancient time, in an ancient culture, people who expected to be instructed by God through their own ancient literary forms. The ideas of history or science as we understand them never existed in their culture. At the Second Vatican Council, in the document known as Dei Verbum, and in subsequent official Vatican documents, the Catholic Church clearly teaches that divine inspiration of sacred scripture fully employed the minds and hearts of the human authors so that they would communicate all that God wished to reveal through their writings in the language and literary styles common to the time, place, and culture in which the human authors wrote. Most of us like stories about how things important to us got started. I grew up loving to hear my dad tell the story of how he met my mom. And years later, I began to wonder why I never heard the story of how mom met dad, uh, but that would take us very far afield. Most of us who received our schooling in the United States grew up with the impression that world history was chiefly the story of how America eventually got discovered. And American history itself was pretty much centered on the story of how 13 British colonies became the United States of America. 
we easily disregard the fact that there might be many ways, many perspectives for telling our story, especially if you are a Native American or if your ancestors came to America as slaves. Any story of our beginnings is very important to us. These stories tell us who we are, where we come from, and what is important to us. For the nation of Judah and its ancient heritage as Israel, the story of its beginnings was not Genesis, but Exodus. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God had set them free to be their own nation when he divided the waters of the sea, exposed the land beneath, and set them on the path to the Promised Land. Israel had the Exodus story ingrained into their consciousness long before Genesis 1 was officially given to them by its religious leaders. God was the creator for sure, but it was his creation of Israel that had always been most significant. But then the unthinkable happened. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground. The temple was ground into rubble. The people, at least those with any training, education, or skills, were hauled off as slaves to Babylon. Babylon was a vast, incredible empire. Its temples to its gods mocked even the memory of Jerusalem's. Had they really believed that the temple of Jerusalem was the center of the earth, surrounded by the majesty and power of an empire that didn't even know the name of the god Judah worshipped, serious questions about their faith began to disturb the newly enslaved Judahites. The Babylonians had a myth about the beginnings of the world. As any significant story about beginnings should, this myth made real sense of the world as both the Babylonians and the enslaved Judahites were experiencing it. One of the big problems in the world was chaos. The Babylonian creation myth told them that their chaotic lives were simply a reflection of divine reality. There is chaos on earth because there is chaos in the heavens. The gods struggle with it as much as you do. In Babylon, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, farm villages faced a perennial threat of devastating floods. And if a flood didn't wash you away, you might waste away in a famine. Civilizations came and went. Armies marched incessantly. Cities burned. Entire nations were enslaved and carted off to foreign lands. Beneath any semblance of order in the world, chaos crouched at the ready to destroy it. There was a second significant message in the Babylonian creation myth. Like us, it said, the gods are often at war with each other. The world and humanity owe their existence to cosmic struggle. At the beginning of time, the sky god defeated the water goddess, who was the goddess of chaos, and to enshrine his victory, he mutilated the water goddess's commanding general and made little human slaves out of his blood. Those who had experienced the destruction of Jerusalem would have found that easy to believe. Their grief over their loss is eloquently expressed in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat weeping when we remembered Zion. On the poplars in its midst, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for the words of a song, our tormentors for joy, Sing for us a song of Zion. But how could we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? A third message of the Babylonian creation myth involved slavery. Human beings are essentially slaves. We exist so that the victorious gods can enjoy their victory. Humans labor 
in order to give rest to the gods. Among the Israelites taken to Babylon would have been the priests and scribes associated with God's temple in Jerusalem. While Babylon had its own official religion, they would have allowed the Jewish slaves to exercise their religion, though they probably insisted on occasions of public worship recognizing the Babylonian gods. The religious leaders among the exiled Israelites would have found it extremely important to keep the songs of Zion alive, along with the memory of Jerusalem and knowledge of their Lord. The question was, how do you keep alive what was once a national religion with a fixed center of worship when you are now slaves in a foreign land without a temple to worship in? One very telling approach would be to emphasize a tenet of faith that had always been part of their religion, but never really stressed at length before. The God who created Israel is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. This God was in charge of the whole world, as in charge in Babylon as he had been in Egypt when he parted the seas and led Israel out of slavery. Seen against the backdrop of Babylon's creation mythology, the account of creation in Genesis 1 shines with new brilliance. It uses many of the themes found in the Babylonian myth, but the themes are approached with bold clarifications that stress the unique qualities and purposes of Israel's God. Chaos, so prominent in the Babylonian account, is squelched without so much as a whimper in the Genesis account. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters, then God said, let there be light. The Hebrew words for without form or shape, tohu wabohu, might well suggest the chaotic water world represented by the goddess of chaos in the Babylonian myth. But here in Genesis, there is no war, no battle, no struggle at all. In fact, unable to describe nothingness, being without form or shape may well be as close a description for nothing as we could hope for. What the God of Genesis does is not to go to war with chaos, but to bring clarity, distinction, order, and purpose into being by the all-effective power of His Word. For six days, God will create through the spoken Word. The message of the six days is not about how long it took God to create, but that our world is created in the context of time. We and all of creation are governed by time. It rules over us all. But of special importance is the message that God's word, spoken to the world over the period of these six days, brings increasing order and dignity to the world. In days one through three, God's word creates places in the world that are to be the homes for those creatures he will speak into being in days four through six. Now the exiles from Judah knew something about the word of God. This creation story might, as a whole, have been new to them, but the ideas it spoke to were not. What they heard in the context of their captivity, however, was that the word of God that was meant to govern their lives in Jerusalem is part of the same word that brought the whole world into being. They were not to forget that word just because they were in a foreign land. The word of God that brought order, dignity, and purpose to creation is the same word that will bring order, dignity, and purpose 
to their lives in Babylon. What a contrast this is to the Babylonian myth, where the world and humankind are the byproducts of divine warfare, and we spring from the blood of a warrior god's defeated enemy. It implies a natural opposition between the ruling god and the people that are ruled. In Genesis 1, God repeatedly pronounces the goodness of creation. Far from being slaves, humans have an exalted position in Genesis 1, where God says, Let us make human beings in our image, after our likeness. The use of the plural, let us make, is problematic, but may reflect the notion that God is king over a heavenly court, a belief that anyone who believes in angels still holds today. What is most worth our attention, however, is that humans are made in the image of God. God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Theologians have speculated endlessly about what it means to be made in the image of God, and indeed, it is worthy of intense interest. But our first clue as to what it refers to comes from a practice common in the Fertile Crescent at the time Genesis was compiled. In the days of vast empires like that of Babylon, emperors and kings considered themselves the regents or even the sons of the god in whose name they ruled. It was, of course, impossible for the emperors to personally assert their authority everywhere, but they did have a way of reminding everyone who was in charge. In cities throughout their empire, they would place statues or busts of themselves as representatives or images of the ruling god as a sign that obedience to them was equal to obedience to the ruling god. It is actually a very exalted notion of human beings to depict them in Genesis as images of God. It does suggest that we have been given a great deal of authority to be signs of God's presence in the world, but that authority comes in the context of our being placed in a world where everything is there by the will of God and is viewed by God as being very good. There is even a twist on the Babylonian notion that human beings were made in order to give the gods rest. It is true that God gives humans labor to do in the earth. They must harvest the plants of the earth for their food. But God also invites, insists in fact, that humans enter into God's own rest on the Sabbath. Our highest duty is to join God in a spiritual rest, a rest that makes God a greater good than the good earth in which we have been placed. There is some deep, unfathomable likeness between us and God here, one that surely comes from our being made in God's image. We've only skimmed the surface of the first creation account in Genesis 1. What about the second account? The first thing we should take serious note of is that there are some significant differences in the storyline between the two creation accounts. If we were to insist that Genesis was somehow history, that is, that the world was created in the way Genesis lays it out, we would have to ask, which story do we believe? In Genesis 1, verses 24 through 25, God makes all the animals first, and then, in verse 26, God makes the humans, both male and female. In Genesis 2, verse 7, God molds a generic human out of clay and then breathes life into it. The human is lonely, so God makes the animals later 
in chapter 2, verse 19. But the human still needs more appropriate companionship. So in chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, God puts the human to sleep and fashions another human, a woman, from the first human's rib. Only now can we be certain that human beings have gender. Scholars have long suspected that the creation account in Genesis 2 is actually the older of the two, but that both got included in Genesis because both reflected traditions that deserve to be preserved. That can only be a problem if both somehow have to be historical. Does the Bible really teach that snakes used to walk and that they could talk? Isn't the point of Genesis 3's story of temptation and sin in the garden that we humans have from the very beginning fallen prey to the desire to place ourselves outside God's care and to rely on our own grand intelligence in deciding what is good and what is evil? Isn't our original sin that from the very beginning we have hidden ourselves from God's presence and reinforced that separation from generation to generation? If neither account in Genesis records the literal sequence of events by which God created the world, what are we left with? We are left with divinely inspired literary works that reveal to us God's intentions in creating the world and our own place and purpose in the world. Let's briefly list some of the wonderful, timeless truths Genesis reveals to us. One, God spoke creation into being. By its very nature, the world exists in relationship to God. Two, any chaos that seems to threaten creation is incapable of resisting God's purposes. Three, as at the creation, the word of God brings order, dignity, and purpose to the world. Four, the world is good. Five, God made man and woman in the image of God. Humans are meant to be a sign of God's presence in the world. Six, we exist within the context of time, and our human labors are fixed to the rhythm of days, of weeks, of seasons, and of years, but we have a purpose and a dignity that transcends time itself. Finally, man and woman are to take their rest in God. Man and woman will discover their full dignity, purpose, and goodness by deliberately resting from their activity and honoring their Creator.